do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hail weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is here to tell the sons and daughters that Satan was an acid head. Welcome, John (laughs) Harrison. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thank you, Andrew. Terrific introduction as well. Excellent. I'm very excited to be here. So I really enjoy uh, the past episodes that I've heard. So thanks for inviting me on. Oh, yeah, no, no, no worries. I mean, yeah, you're always on my list, uh, you know. So, uh, I mean, we, we've written for uh, a number of things, similar things. I think, you know, we, we both write for We Belong Dad, and I'm sure we've written for other sort of companies and, and organisations uh, at the same time. Uh, you know, I've always seen your name popping up, and obviously we're, we're friends on Facebook. And then next year you're about to release a new book about Kiss. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Uh, of course, you're a value contributor to that book as well. So that was terrific. I'm um, very happy with your contribution there. So, yes, the book I am working on at the moment for Bear Manor Media in the US is called Creatures of the Screen. And it is a book about the rock group Kiss, who, um, you know, the my favourite band growing up and still my favourite band. And I've always wanted to write something about the, the group, but didn't want to do like, you know, there's been so many books already written about Kiss, about their history and their recording. So I was lo- looking for a bit of a new angle to approach it from. And, you know, being a film, film buff as well and a fan of cult cinema, I thought a book looking at Kiss primarily from uh, the point of view of their film and television work over the the years, the decades. Uh, so the book covers, you know, not just the official stuff that Kiss made, like Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, of course, and the, the Paul Lind Halloween special and movies like Detroit Rock City, um, but it also covers all of the, the fan-made and unauthorised documentaries or some of the most interesting ones like Kiss Loves You. Uh, very fascinating doco from the the late 90s and then there's also the third part of the book which looks at sort of all the films and tv shows that I guess um, being widely dubbed as kissploitation so shows that were obviously based on kiss or were inspired by kiss or the characters but not officially kiss so you can go back to things like episodes of scooby-doo from the mid-70s that had a character called the um the diabolical disc demon that was obviously a, a Gene Simmons lookalike. And then you had the the episode of The Love Boat that had Sonny Bono playing at Deacon Dark, a very Kiss-like rock star. And basically that went on even into the, you know, the 80s. And then when Kiss reunited in the 90s, you know, there was also a lot of other things that were inspired by Kiss. I remember even a, an episode of a Homicide Life on the Streets, that great American crime show, uh, there was an episode where a guy who um, couldn't speak English but had had kiss makeup on and had gone to like someone's door ranting and raving in their European language and you know the the Americans sort of came to the door and shot them dead and and just seeing that was like a real buzz back in the the early 90s when kiss were pretty much all but forgotten about to see that, a that, reference that like that 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 weren't some random that was that was Ace Frehley. <laughs> That's what he yeah. does these days. <laughs> yeah, it could have been Max and John. Or... <laughs> um, oh, yeah, it could have been Ace after a couple of um, glasses of Moe Shannon on. 
Uh, he's not making much sense these days, is he? I don't know. I, I love Ace. You know, Ace, Ace is always my kind of favorite. He was always my guy. Um, but um, and I had a soft spot for Peter as well. But um, yeah, uh, he, he's not making a deal of sense these days. And, and live stuff, I think uh, it's slightly embarrassing. I think. Um, yeah, um, no, definitely. Um, that's something that I can't um, I can only watch a few seconds of. You know, and. Yeah, it's not the ace really I prefer to remember. And and again, you know, he was one of my favourites growing up as well. And, you know, he definitely was, you know, the I guess the rock and roll figure in the band and that was always really cool and, you know, that sort of appealed to me. But I think all those years have obviously caught up to him, you know, when you look on the other side at Gene and Paul who live relatively, you know, clean lives and yet, you know, even though they're, they're in their 70s, they're probably handling the rigours of the life on the road and, you know, even though obviously their, their new show or their current show, you know, has a lot of sort of audio help, you know, they, they still put on a, a great, terrific uh, arena rock show. I mean, uh, just just going back to you know this idea of kiss exploitation and 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 the the they they them having kind of faux kiss type characters in different TV shows. I mean, I think uh, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, my my favourite of all those has got to be Donny, uh, aka Ralph Mouth most uh, uh with his uh, interpretation of the, the gene simmons-esque uh moloch in in the chips episode which is i remember seeing that at the time and just thinking and i was obsessed with that and and it and it it, it literally what because i guess you know in america and perhaps australia um i mean obviously in, in america kiss were huge in the 70s in the mid 70s up until sort of 76 78 79 that was when they hit their sort of peak but in in terms of in australia obviously you know there's, there's always been that connection with kiss in australia um but in the uk the kiss were known about and i i was into kiss but it was very much kind of even though they did tour and they were popular in the uk it, it was always kind of they were they were never that that they never had that big flash moment that it did in the uk it's always grumbled on you know and it's always been the the weird yeah. kids that were into kiss or you know and and i you know i remember getting that alive too my brother buying alive too and, and just staring at that front cover and and the the gatefold sleeve and the pictures inside and yeah. being absolutely captivated by that um but yeah but i think that that was seeing that episode of chips was kind of before I really got into Kiss, so it's kind of what is this, you know? And very soon I got into Kiss and Alice Cooper and all that kind of stuff. So, and then going back, and then I remember there was an episode of Benson as well where Kiss aren't in it, but they are the the subject, you know, uh, the the young girl. Yeah, the little trying, girl trying to get um, to wants a... to go and see them and uh, wants to go and see the concert. And the the father, I think the father was a senator, was he? Um, a politician, and that's right. Yeah, sort of yeah. said no. Yeah, she sort of like lied and snuck out to see them and then got in trouble for it. But, yeah, that was obviously during the dynasty period when, you know, all the little kids were flocking to see Kiss all of a sudden. <laughs> but the interesting thing about the Chips episode, of course, is that it was made in like 1982, which was pretty much, you know, a, a few years after Kiss had really peaked in America. So it was quite a bit um, surprising to see Kiss still influencing, uh, you know, a national TV show at that stage. You know, when because that was the year they did Creatures of the Night, which uh, barely yeah. did anything and was coming off the elder. So, you know, whether it was based on like, you know, obviously with a lot of these shows, maybe the scripts have been lying around for a couple of years. And, you know, as the seasons wear on and they're, they're, they're you know, stuck for ideas, I think, what have we got in the vault? 
you know. Um, but, of course, you know, there was still, I guess, even though Kiss may have been, you know, passe at that point in America, there was still, like, other bands up and coming, like Motley Crue. And, you know, so I think that that sort of glam look was always, um, you know, cyclically popular with um, hard rock music. But Ozzy as well, you know, Ozzy was like huge Ozzy, at that yeah, point, right. you know, and, and he was seen as being, you know, Satan himself. And, and also it tied into the whole satanic panic, which was around that time as well. And um, yeah. so, yeah, you, you, yeah, I mean, Kiss just on a, you know, what, I mean, like I said, this book is, I'm more, you know, I'm, I'm I, I really can't wait for this book. And I think that, you know, and I was really pleased to contribute to it, uh, as did lots of other people. And um, I think it's it is that thing, like you said, Kiss, your favourite band. And I and I think th this is what people don't understand. I think that there are because if you go into like Kiss forums and that, let's face it, there's a lot of fucking idiots that are into Kiss, you know. But I think <laughs> yeah. that you know who are very simplistic in there. Well, they are the they are you know. Um, Paul Stanley is the best rhythm guitarist in the world. And he's like, well, no, no he's clearly not. Yeah. He's, but, you know, it's perfectly possible to look at Kiss and think, yes, if you strip it a apart, they, they obviously they're not the best band in the world, but they should be your favourite. Because what Absolutely. else does a horror comics fan want in a band? I mean, I mean, I'm not saying you have to like them now, you know, but in terms of classic Kiss, sort of from the mid 70s to that sort of late 70s period and i like some other stuff after that as well but that you know particularly that, that love gun era kiss it's just fucking incredible it's just it was everything you yeah. could have possibly wanted in a band absolutely and i mean you know um i was probably the you know the right age for it but in australia we didn't really get um you know kisteria as such you know the band never really broke big until dynasty and i was made for loving you so prior to that they were kind of similar to you know the uk they were like, like popular as like a cult band but they weren't like huge like they were in america it wasn't until dynasty really put them over the top and suddenly you know they, they their first tour here was like playing to you know forty thousand seat stadiums and i was like 15 at that time and a horror movie and sci-fi buff so you know a comic book fan so it was just like obviously they're going to be you know a band that i'm into and and i love their music as well it was just great you know simplistic three chord rock but it was very good and you know it did exactly what it was meant to do and and um again you know i agree with you totally if someone asked me you know who my favorite group is or who i think you know um the best band is you know myself i'll say for a second you know without hesitation kiss are my favorite but if someone asked me who do i think you know the best band in history is or the most talented or the most influential i mean i'd probably rattle off you know 30 or 40 bands before kiss even you know came into my thinking you know so i'm well aware that yeah as musicians and songwriters you know there are people that are streets above them but you know put them all together and put that makeup on and the cost Costumes and the stage show and you know forget your you know your serious side and just let yourself go and you know a kiss concert and listening to kiss music it's just a great release of um energy and stress exactly and, and and also if we're really honest you know if you said okay you could be in any band you could switch places with any member of any band of course you're gonna fucking choose kiss why would you not be why would you yeah. be, why would you be in fucking <laughs> emerson lake and palmer when you could be in fucking kiss you know <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> but yeah no it's um an exciting book so yeah and, and obviously you uh contributed a great piece on the 
infamous Tomorrow Show appearance in 1979 when the band pretty much, you know, publicly unraveled in front of their fans' eyes on late night live television. So certainly a, you know, a um, very pivotal moment in their their visual history. And yeah, so definitely looking forward to hopefully that uh, should come out, you know, uh, mid next year, early to mid next year. It is something that the more you um the more you sort of uh, dig deeper the deeper you dig as such the more you uncover in terms of you know different movies or tv appearances that you then need to you know investigate and um write about and research and and obviously i have like other work that comes in you know uh, on spec that you know need to take precedence sometimes just um you know to pay the bills as such yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah, I, I'm really like I said, I'm really looking forward to to getting a copy and um, seeing seeing it in print and everything. And uh, yeah, and we, I mean, if anybody else is uh, anybody's listening, and this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, we, if you're into Kiss or you've got any interest in Kiss, on episode six we we covered Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, and I was lucky enough to t- to talk to Tom from uh, Shout Out Loudcast, which is the biggest kiss podcast in the world and it's just a yeah it's a fun little podcast and it's a, it's an interesting but so it's good to talk to tom but yeah yeah so so john um obviously with kiss there's there is a real connection with horror obviously you know lots of rock bands i think toy with it but kiss obviously had that iconography and, and all you know similar to alice cooper you know but it was all kind of very much tied into that particularly with gene um but um so but what other than kiss what was your kind of entry point into horror and horror films um i guess my uh, entry point into fantasy cinema certainly probably came when i was about 10 years old certainly at least in a conscious way when i turned up at um primary school and was told that we were going to be treated to a film that day and we got shuffled into uh, one of the houses next door that the nuns lived in because i was at a christian school (laughs) and um there was all this like there was like well, I didn't know it was sixteen millimeter at the time, but there was like a projector and sixteen millimeter film sort of being threaded in. And what it turned out was one of the kids in my class, a kid called Bradley. His father was uh, one of the big wigs at Channel Seven, one of the big uh, television stations here at the time. We only had like three major commercial TV channels at the time. And anyway, this guy's father had managed to get a print of Beneath the Planet of the Apes to screen for us as a treat. And that was the first time that I'd seen any of the Planet of the Apes movies and the first time I'd really been consciously in a room. I'd, I'd been to the cinema, I'm sure, previously as a kid, but this was the first time I was in a room actually watching a projector, you know, getting threaded and being screened and and just that whole fantasy of the story of the Planet of the Apes. And that that uh, film in particular also had the underground mutants, which added like a, an extra layer of excitement to it. And so that certainly got me, you know, heavily into my love for fantasy cinema. And then horror in particular, I guess, um, came a couple of years later when a friend and I told our told our parents we were going to the St Kilda Library to do our homework on the weekend and snuck off into the city to see a double bill of Food of the Gods and Squirm to um, nature and muck horror films that we'd seen the ad for on TV and we'd seen the, you know, the, the, advertisement in the newspaper and you know we're like well our parents are never going to let us go see that so we'll just um sneak off and that was the first time we'd gone into the city on our own unsupervised the first time we'd um you know gone to the cinema on our own and that was really the first time I'd consciously seen a horror film in a cinema and 
really love both of them. I mean, Food of the Gods was a lot of fun and introduced me to Marjo Gortner, who was a fascinating character I also wrote a book about. Um, and But it was Squirm that really, like, affected me, you know, uh, Jeff Liebman's films about electrified worms coming out of the ground down south in Georgia. And there was just something about the whole vibe, not just the horror of it, that great scene where the worms are got burrowing up into the Roger the Gardener's um, worm farmer's face, but, you know, just, um, you know, just terrified me and gave me nightmares and for weeks and pretty much like a couple of weeks after that, I first discovered famous posters of Filmland magazine at my local news agents. And I think from there, you know, my love of horror and reading about it and studying it really just snowballed from that point. Yes, I mean, um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes you mentioned there. I mean, that that's always fascinated me because I think if I remember rightly, I think that was the first plant, my first Planet of the Apes film as well. Uh, and so for a long time, I kind of had it in my head that that was the Planet of the Apes, you know, because it, uh, uh, yeah. because it all kind of blows up at the end. You think, well, they can't have done any more, you know. It's, it's just, you know. So, uh, and I, I loved that. And also, because um, it was the first one I saw as well, like because it starts with a recap of the first one, so it was a yeah. little bit confusing to a kid yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah. And I was like, "What's the Statue of Liberty doing there?" And I remember stupidly asking the teacher, "Did the ape steal that from Earth?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at that point, the teacher sort of gave us a, a brief sort of background as to you know what happened uh, in the first movie, just to no doubt to try and ward off any you know further uh, stupid questions <laughs> from the likes of me. But um, you know, but it was great. So the only downside was that when I did see Planet of the Apes uh, a while later, when I went it up on TV, <laughs> yeah, I sort of knew how it was ending. So you know, whether I would have guessed it or not, I don't know. But <laughs> I mean that. I mean, obviously, directed by Ted Post, who also did uh, one of my favourite cult movies, The Baby. You know, and um, yeah, that, yeah, and, and and so. Beneath the Planet of the Apes, you know, it's a little bit like Kiss, you know, it's not the best Planet of the Apes film, but it's, in some ways, it's my favourite because it's just, it's fucking right, mental. Yeah. It's really bizarre. It's so many elements. It goes for like 80 minutes, you know, there's no fat on it. And, you know, it's got, um, you know, the great General Ursus, who was like just such a great character. And again, you know, the, the mutants, the way they like pray to the atomic bomb, that was really like classic sort of 70s, I guess, um, early 70s stuff. And and again, just that whole nihilistic ending with just the whole world just blown up. And then you're like, hang on, there was three more after this, you know. <laughs> and then when I saw Escape, you know, again, uh, that was like really interesting, the way they, you know, made it all come full circle. And, and I, I was like, you know, I've got a whole uh, collection of apes memorabilia behind me. You know, I, I still love um, – all the stuff, you know, I remember, you know, discovering the Planet of the Apes uh, Marvel comic book and the bubblegum cards and everything. Yeah, the paperback novels, yep. <laughs> Great memories. You know, in the days when you didn't have the luxury uh, to be able to just, you know, go and, you know, um, pop it into your Blu-ray player or your VHS, you know, you had to find other ways to relive the film. And that was uh, where the, you know, the magazines and the comic books and the, the soundtracks and, you know, the novelizations. I'd buy the soundtrack and, you know, read the comic book along to it and, you know, replay it in my head. It's what you had to do back then. Yeah. And I think, you know, as much as I'm a absolutely, you know, I'm a physical media nut and I, you know, and I collect stuff, um, but... You know, I, I think in some ways when you didn't, you couldn't own it when you had to wait for it to appear on TV or cinema or whatever, or, or you know, as you said, in a lot of cases, it was just seeing pictures from a film. You may not have seen the film itself, but you, you were able to 
vicariously enjoy it through reading about it or, or seeing pictures, it did create a kind of mythical connection with those films, which is kind of difficult to um, imagine in some ways because everything is is instantly accessible now, you know, uh, which is great. You know, I'm not right. knocking, but I think it did create some sort of mystique that that you you, you can't you can't really recreate now because everything is so available and accessible and there and Absolutely. you have instant uh, access to things you know you know that that's great as well i certainly appreciate that and i appreciate being able to stream stuff you know at a moment's notice and if i need something to watch something to to write about or you know and i don't need to own every single thing so you know i appreciate being able to stream but yeah there was definitely like um uh, you know, there was something about, you know, again, just looking through the paper every week or the, you know, the uh, news, news uh, the TV listings and seeing some hammer horror that was showing up at 2am next Friday, you know, and having to stay awake, you know, fight to stay awake to 2am to watch it. And then the disappointment of turning the TV on at 1.55 and, you know, the cricket has gone overtime and you're like, oh, no, you know, are they still going to show the movie or what? <laughs> and then struggling to stay awake through some of these movies because, you know, throwing the ads and that um, late night ads and it would offer me, you know, a good 60 minutes or so before you get any sort of monsters or excitement showing up. Oh, what? Yeah, what is it? I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I hate to be, I mean, obviously you're Australian, so it's kind of similar for you, but I, I'm, a, I'm an Englishman. And it's kind of like you, you, you're supposed to like cricket, but I fucking despise cricket. And and I think part of it is, is like you said, like over here, we used to have, uh, you know, one of my, as I've said many, many times before, but we had the Saturday night, late night horror double bills, which used to be on BBC Two over here. And they were always, as you said, you had to sit through like an hour of cricket sort of you know uh recapped cricket footage before you could get to to the horror stuff so yeah i've always learned to detest you know cricket and and most other sports to be honest you know all the good stuff on saturday saturday afternoon as well we we had a program over here called grandstand which is on which i think was on for about three hours but as a kid who didn't like sport it felt like it was on for like 10 hours and then you know you had to sit yeah. through all that and the results and all that before you could get to doctor who and stuff so yeah <laughs> i kind of learned to detest sport from a very young age and the problem too um for me being in australia was um those like you know midnight to, to dawn hours was usually when all the big uh, sporting events in England and America were taking place. So that's when they were normally all, you know, Wimbledon and the the cricket and all that were being broadcast live. So it always, you know, if it did go over, it always did cut into those 2 a.m. movies, you know, and I guess to the programmers, they were like, ah, oh, so what? You know, we don't show an old horror movie. But to me, I was like, damn you, you know. Because <laughs> yeah, you yeah. never know when you get another chance to, to see it again, you know. It could be another year or two before it would turn up again and, you know, same with going to see a movie, you know, you knew if you didn't make the effort to go and see, you know, the latest horror movie at the cinema, you know, it was going to be probably at least a year or year or so before it would, you know, turn up on television at least. And then it would normally, you know, probably be cut, you know, uh, whereas now, of course, you know, a, a film might get like two or three weeks in a cinema and then two weeks later it's on Blu-ray and then on Netflix. So I remember, you know, you know, kind of going back to Kiss really in a way, um, because I was into like, you know, a lot of metal stuff and, and, because they you know talking about the sort of mid 80s and it was chiming in with a lot of mtv and cable channels that were coming in because you know in the uk really at that point we only had three channels then four channels when channel four kicked in and they 
I t- because you, you you have BBC, then you had ITV, and ITV had lots of local networks. So so they would put different things. Some things were the same, but a lot of things were different. And in my region, you had they would kind of borrow stuff from a cable channel, and they kind of almost used it as filler. But because the cable channel was going out live, and they would kind of rejoin that as ITV you'd have you got a program called the power hour which was one of the few places you could see actually see metal bands on tv and the videos and all that and 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 so because it was going out live on cable and they didn't just record it and put it on later on itv if anything was overrunning or they'd run out of time or whatever they would just simply they'd stick it on so you might get the full hour or you might only get the last five minutes and it, God, it used to piss me off so much. It was just like, oh, yeah, be, you know, you're staying up till half past one in the morning. It's like, and you, you just give me fucking five minutes. <laughs> Is that it? You know, you'd see half of the creatures of the night video and that's it. It's like fucking. Hell. Oh yeah. That would be so annoying. And they used to do that over here as well, especially during the, the period when kiss were big you know if there was like a tv show that was saying you know coming up is the you know the new kiss video you knew they would always leave it till right at the very end of the show to keep people watching and it worked because i would sit through it anyway just in case i thought you never know they might put it on early you know and you didn't have the luxury of recording it back then so you know they knew if you kept it to the end people were going to keep tuning in yeah. But we didn't have uh, the power hour. We had the hour of power here, which was like a, a religious show. <laughs> it's just various uh, <laughs> subversions of the same name in different countries. I yeah. <laughs> but we were the same. Like, we only had three commercial TV channels growing up. You know, there was Channel 7, 9, and 10. And um, and then we had uh, the ABC, which was like the government channel, the uh, public channel. And they, they were the ones that played uh, Doctor Who and a lot of all the, the BBC shows, you know, the goodies, uh, shows like that all played on the ABC. Um, and then, yeah, you had the others. But, you know, the others, they all had, you know, midnight to dawn uh, movie marathons. And there was always like Thunderbirds at 6 a.m. every Saturday morning, which was always a ritual for me. Okay, so I think it's about time to go into uh, the film we're going to discuss today, which is I Drink Your Blood from 1970, directed by David E. Durston. The biggest, bloodiest horror show in history. I Drink Your Blood. Men become animals and eat their victims. I drink your blood. So, John, when was the first time you came across this film? Uh, it was definitely, yeah, from the early um, home video days of the early 80s that I first became aware of this film. Um, again, it definitely is not a film uh, that was discussed in famous monsters or magazines like that that I was aware of. So uh, this was one of those movies that in those early days of uh, home video, they were basically like digging up all sorts of stuff from the vaults and um, putting it out there on labels like uh, there was um, Palace Explosive and King of Video, you know, stuff that um, may have got a cinema release, you know, when I was very young or before I was even born that, again, I hadn't read about in Famous Monsters. And I Drink Your Blood was just one of those titles that I saw sitting on the shelf, probably next to stuff like, you know, Blood Sucking Freaks and 
Um, what was the other one? I Spit on Your Grave was the other notorious one. And, you know, I just remember taking it home and just being absolutely just spellbound by it, you know. Uh, and, again, this was also a, a couple of years also before magazines like, or, you know, books like Psychotronic and Incredibly Strange Films and the Psychotronic magazine started coming out that sort of covered, started to cover these more obscure exploitation films and I started to, you know, discover a bit more about it. But, yeah, initially it was just like one of those movies that came out of nowhere that I just, you know, hired based solely on, you know, the cover and the title and, you know, the blurb on the back and just, yeah, had an instant impact on me. But uh, the, the second time I saw it was when uh, Something Weird put it out um, on home video in the, the early 90s. And I remember being really disappointed because my memory of the movie was so strong in that I, I was, like, so sure that it was, like, really gory and... Um, graphic and bloody and when something weird put it out and I watched it I was like hang on this this you know is this the movie um, that I remember watching you know but unfortunately it turned out something weird had um, picked up a cut print uh, from when it had been later re-released um, as like a PG movie on a you know a, a drive-in dust to dawn or whatever so you know I remember watching the something weird version and thinking oh there's something wrong here so I tracked down the the original Australian release and that's when I realized yeah no I wasn't um you know wasn't remembering things differently you know it really was wildly gory and over the top uh, graphic for its time yeah I mean one, one of the things about this film I think is um I mean we'll, we'll get to the performances and and the plot and all that in a sec but it's um for me I, I see I the blood doesn't bother I mean I don't, I'm not I'm not into the, the I mean I, I don't quite know what's happening with with the chicken i i i keep watching it to try and discern whether that the chicken was already dead or it was an actual live chicken they were doing or whether it was stock footage i i don't i you know i'm not into i'm not on board with that you know in the same way that you know people eulogize about cannibal holocaust but i can't fucking get on board with yeah. cannibal holocaust either it's fucking i know it's not me no no and i watched um you know tintorera and stuff like that where they're you know, clearly using wires to like guide, you know, the live sharks by the mouth and that. And yeah, and um, what was the other one I watched recently? Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner, where you can clearly see the car, you know, running over, you know, hundreds of live spiders that they'd imported um, for the movie, you know. And that, I think that's one of the downsides of Blu-ray and high def. It allows, you know, a lot of these things to become more clear and has a, an impact like that. Um, but yeah, human, you know, uh, Carnage to humans uh, in terms of makeup effects and movies and that I can watch and it doesn't bother me at all. But any um, animal, um, you know, suffering, even if it's, you know, um, not real, you know, just done for the cameras, I still find it, you know, tough to watch. But definitely when it's like, you know, genuine footage again, like in Cannibal Holocaust, I just can't, yeah, I can't sit through it. But the other thing for me personally is that I... I've got I've got a real not I wouldn't say phobia it's a bit too strong a word but I I really don't like I don't like spitting and I don't like people to spit and I I don't like the idea of because I grew up in the the eighties in in England and went to a comprehensive school and lads just spat all the time but used to oh it's just I used to, it just disgusts me I hate it you know and and so having having a horror film. Where where ninety percent of the cast are running around slavering uh, is that's that upsets me more than the blood and stuff that I I, I ooh, 
Does, uh, yeah, I think the know. most upsetting thing about it to me is um, uh, the sound of the slurping when they're eating the, the meat pies <laughs> that have been um, infected with rabies. And it's got, you know, the, the, the soundtrack is so heavy with just actually no other music while they're showing close-ups of, you know, these meat pies being shoveled into their mouths. And it's just so revolting. Uh, yeah, it's mental. Uh, the, it, it's the... the... <laughs> It's the most mundane and stupid kind of reason for a rabid stroke foe zombie attack happening. It's meat pies. <laughs> it's just a kid <laughs> injecting meat pies. Um, yeah. Um, now, so, John, now this, this film, um, now, I think we, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording and saying that I think it's fair to say that even though this film is a lot of people's cult favourite, it does have that kind of late night double bill. Obviously, it was put out as a double bill originally, and it is shown uh, particularly in America in sort of drive-ins and things like that, and, and it, it has got this cult appeal. So people do love this, but I, I think that it's fair to say that I think from a discussion point of view, it, the context of this film is much more interesting than some of the content in, in some ways. You know, I, I'm not saying it's not entertaining, but, I, I, you know, in terms of the, the, the content is, is less uh, um, well done than, 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 uh, the, 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 than thinking about it as a contextual piece of cinema. I don't want to sound all sort of film studies tutor about this, but it is kind of... There is a lot going on on the periphery. In many ways, it's, um, you know, it's pure exploitation, grindhouse, um, you know, trash is what they would, I guess, dismiss it as, you know, back in the day. Um, but, yeah, I think, as you said, it, it's more about some of the some of the ideas that it represents or and that it contains. And to me, it's also just um, more about the overall ambience of the film rather than anything sort of specific about it. It's just got a really strange vibe about it that I've always found very, um, very like oppressive and depressing. And I love the the setting as well, the sort of the rural um, setting. I think it was filmed in Sharon Springs, New York State, which uh, a small little area that I think even um, as recently as 2021 only had a population of just over 500. So it's got that very sort of isolated setting. And, and it's obviously, I think, was riffing on the success of Night of the Living Dead a couple yeah. of years earlier and trying to replicate a lot of that, but obviously with none of the you know the the class or the you know the the, the satire or the you know the the technical um, prowess and uh, behind the camera, but um, you know I also really love that it's at that at one of those sort of earliest of the what I call the the Manson influenced uh, exploitation films that came out in the wake of the Charles Manson killings done by you know his um, so called family in late 1969. You know, and I think that um, really sort of started a period. And prior to that, you know, the hippies and the counterculture types in films were usually, you know, depicted as uh, maybe grubby and, you know, always out of their heads and tripping and everything. But they were relatively sort of harmless. You know, some of them might sort of rob a bank or something. But, you know, it wasn't until after Manson that suddenly hippies were starting to be portrayed as like genuine, like um, monsters as such, you know, to be feared. And, and I think a lot of that was obviously down to... Um, um, the impact that the, the Manson killings had. And and obviously it was a, a perfect sort of subject for the exploitation filmmakers to take advantage of, you know, um, only natural that they were going to do that. 
Well, I think, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things chiming at the same time. You know, as I always say, you know, films don't happen within a vacuum. They they are influenced by what's happening in, in a wider society. And, and yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of things. Obviously, this came out in 70, but it would have been in production in 69. And and you've got um, things like Ultimate as well, you know, the Rolling Stones. That was kind of like the, the dagger in the heart of the love generation. And you you got you know like you said the manson family that came at the end of that decade it was it was almost like you know you went from like hair or these kind of films and then suddenly these people are seen as more of a not just a a threat in terms of they are going against your political ideology but they might actually come and murder you you know so this is you know that that idea writ, writ large and i think you know obviously is, you know, other films arguably do it in, in a more subtle or, or, or kind of convincing way. You know, Night of the Living Dead kind of sums up a lot of, obviously taps into the race and the sort of civil rights era and things like that. But, um, but I, you know, technically, um, I, th- I think it's well directed. And like you said, that, that the, the vibe is what really what is really nice about it and you know because it's similar to a lot of the films you know particularly those romero sort of that you know obviously it chimes in with the crazies with the crazies came slightly later on but it's got and, and obviously the, there's the connection with lynn lowry as well with both films but it it does it is that that uh, it's this kind of thing i talk a bang on about all the time and i'm sure people get sick of hearing it but i love the late 60s early 70s feel it's just it's it's not the technical stuff. It's just the, the grainy cheapness and the grubbiness. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's a that's a big part. Like if this film was in black and white, it probably wouldn't be anywhere near as effective or if it was shot on like high def, you know, video. Uh, definitely the, the film grain in I Drink Your Blood is absolutely one of those movies where it's just, you know, perfect. Uh, perfect, you know, in terms of matching the, you know, the the grubbiness and the, you know, the messiness of the subject. I mean, I mean, what you say, I mean, oh, clearly this is riffing on Night of the Living Dead. It's going for for those kind of books and it's trying it's trying to cash in on that that sort of market, obviously. Um, yeah, it, it does kind of predate a lot of those films that would come later. You know, a lot of those films might have been influenced by Night of the Living Dead as well. But, you know, if you look at this you know, well, this is a couple of years before Last House on the Left. Yeah, you could under, you could say that this is slightly more throwaway, but it still has that feeling of because I think what you ha- even in Night of the Living Dead or even in Rosemary's Baby, these were like you know game changing horror films. Yet there was still this idea that there was a reason, a purpose behind it. Some sort of doesn't matter whether you agree with it. There's some sort of master plan, or there's some something's gone yeah. wrong, and there's a kind of explanation for it. And then when you get to sort of um, Last House on the Left, you've got you know Wes Craven's coming in there with his his, his first kind of feature film, and and Sean Cunningham as producer, you know who'd gone to do Friday the Thirteenth and all that, and this deliberate idea of creating something. Because again, I think you know, Last House on the Left is more about the context than than some other content. But but if you look at the content, it's just so nihilistic, and that was the creepy, horrible thing about it. It was there is no explanation. These are just they're just doing this stuff, and there's no explanation. There's no yeah. rhyme or reason. They've not been abused. They've not been. There's, there's nothing. They're just they're just out for kicks, and I and you get that with. Um, 
it to some degree you get that with uh, i drink your blood it's just well why are they doing this well because they can you know there's no sort of i mean there is this kind yeah, of link to, no, to no, say to no real motivation to them um like there is in as you said in some of the the you know other films uh, that came after it but and that's why i was saying you know when i said before one of the reasons why you know i was so shocked um, at, that it was so gory is because you know the the fact when i first saw it because the fact that it did come you know so early in the 70s and that was like really surprising i was like wow i thought you know it really wasn't until a few years you know after that that things really started to spice up in terms of gore but this one had some pretty brutal um you know full-on like severed even though they were obviously fake you know full-on severed heads and severed arms and you know lots of blood flying everywhere you know it's pretty sort of graphic for its time and i think that's what really hit me more than you know the actual display of blood again the effects are pretty primitive almost on a you know herschel gordon lewis kind of level well that, that yeah that's the the the, the name i was going to mention because it is just you know um i think you know and i've been guilty of this and i'm sure lots of other people who who comment or or, or criticize films or whatever or, or write about films do we kind of create these narratives in our head we kind of create the convenient narratives we want you know and we create you know the old idea you had kind of gothic uh you know your edgar Allan poe corman cycle this very gothic lush technical gothic mm -hmm. hammer and then suddenly mid 60s to the end of the 60s vietnam war and then suddenly you're getting you know night of the living dead rosemary's baby and all this and, and, and a new influx of gore but actually, you know, what we leave out of that equation sometimes is Herschel Gordon Lewis and people like that who were, you know, they were having their characters knee deep in blood way before the kind of 80s splatter movie sort of oh, yeah, thing. Yeah, like Herschel Gordon Lewis, yeah. you know, looking back in like 1962, you know, he was showing the, you know, the brains being cut out and the tongues being cut out. And, you know, but again, yeah, those, those are films that, you know, even in the, you know, probably wasn't until the early 80s, you know, um, after years of reading famous monsters and all that, uh, that I, you know, ever first heard of Herschel Gordon Lewis. He was definitely one of those, you know, ultra sort of obscure filmmakers, I think. And, and until the early 80s when his films came out on VHS. And then I remember Fangoria doing like an early feature on him. And that's when um, his films really became, you know, uh, I guess, re-established. Well, we had a, um, I mentioned this before on the podcast, but we had a TV show over here um, called The Incredibly Strange Film Show, which was kind uh, of Channel 4. Yeah, Channel 4 came in 82 and they were kind of the alternative channel to BBC and ITV. And then later on, it's, it's around the, the late 80s, early 90s, you got this TV show called uh, The Incredibly Strange Film Show hosted by Jonathan Ross. And and now Jonathan Ross is very much a primetime darling. But back then he was kind of more sort of a cult figure and he was well into his cult film. So some of my first recollections were, you know, learning about definitely. I can remember the, the Herschel Gordon Lewis episode, you know, and he, him. It's a great show. We had it over here as well on um, the multicultural channel, SBS, uh, played it over here. And yeah, it was a fantastic show. You know, I, w I wish it would come out on like a collected uh, Blu-ray edition, you know. Yeah, I was well aware of uh, Jonathan Ross. And yeah, I mean, most of the filmmakers, I guess I'd already heard of by that point because I'd read psychotronic and incredibly strange films and such but it was still great to you know see these like 45 minute um shows you know devoted to one particular filmmaker and certainly even though i'd read about uh, a lot of these filmmakers already you know a incredibly strange film show was often the first time i'd seen a lot of the actual uh, clips from the movies themselves 
Was, you know, I remember the Russ Meyer one was pretty good and uh, Ray Dennis Steckler, you know, it was yeah, great yeah. stuff and it was great to interview them before they started, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, departing. Yeah, and I, the, the the Mexican wrestler episode, you know, really sticks in my mind as well. I remember as a, you know, as a kid, like, what the fuck, man? Wow, why can't you get these films? <laughs> and now, you know, people like uh, Indicator are just slowly kind of releasing a lot of those Mexican films. I got the first uh, Mexican wrestler set they did. Uh, and it's just, they're just, uh, whatever you think about them, they should exist. They, they, you know, our yeah. world is better because we have Mexican wrestling. Absolutely, and, and I love that kind of totally unique and just totally strange other world cinema that's just, you know, got a, a vibe and a look and a feel and an atmosphere all of its own. And I, I sort of feel the same way about the films of um, Jose Magica Marins or Coffin Joe. Uh, I don't know if you've seen yeah, any yeah, of these yeah, films, yeah. but, you know, it's sort of one of the and Russ Meyer, you know, they're the sort of filmmakers that you know you can watch five seconds of one of their movies and you pretty much know, you know, whose work you're watching. And and I think Herschel Gordon Lewis was like that as well, you know, even though, you know, may not be um you're appreciating the you know the finer elements that make him so distinctive, but you know the fact is that he was a distinctive filmmaker, and I really love um a lot of Herschel's films simply because uh, so many of them like capture so much of the 60s period that it was filmed in you know this was a guy that couldn't afford sets or costumes or you know wardrobe so he was basically just filming you know real locations in whatever the actors turned up wearing that day and I think in a way they become real sort of genuine documents um, rather than a bigger budget movie where the the costumes and the sets and all that have all been like pre-designed on pencil and paper you know there's real authenticity about Herschel Gordon-Lewis's stuff and and with a lot of those exploitation filmmakers from that period because again you know pretty much they were just you know um on the go and just using whatever real locations they could get away with you know uh, without permits and and that just captured a real feel to it a lot of those new york films of doris wishman that she made in the 60s you know those black and white ones just capture a real sort of new york grittiness that i think is really um invaluable yeah i mean um i th i think you know th there's there's a couple of things about his film i think is uh, i mean probably what's gonna hold people back or, or kind of make it a kind of cult film for the uh, you know depending on your point of view either the right or the wrong reasons is that you know as i've said i think it looks great it's a great vibe um it still feels quite shocking in some ways but you know, let's face it, the the actors and the performances are fucking terrible. <laughs> I mean, even by the standards <laughs> of Groundhouse or sort of Poverty Row or whatever, it's pretty fucking shocking. Not, 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 I mean, you expect there to be a little bit of stiffness when you're using non-professional actors or, or actors that have not had much experience. But there's certain characters in this film, it's like, it's not only can they not necessarily deliver lines effectively, they can't even move the way humans move it's like there's a couple of the kid especially it's like what are you doing kid people don't move like that just walk in a normal kid's way. i love the kid i love the kid and you know i love the are we allowed to give away spoilers in the podcast yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but i love the way you know he he sort of basically causes the whole thing by you know putting the rabies in the meat pie and in the end he's the one that survives and the the end of the film just shows him you know this little bratty kid just playing in the field 
killed as you know life goes on but I, I love the way like when the sister's trying to explain um uh what happened to to grandpa because he's been forced fed lsd by the hippies and and um the way the little kid the way the kid just sort of looks at the camera and goes gosh is that what they've done to grandpa <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then, well this moment where there's like this there's, there's so many little uh you know let's let's let you know uh, let's not bother with any of this pesky writing. <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a massive exposition dump. So just halfway, halfway up the stairs. Oh yeah, I uh, I, I stole some uh, rabid dog's blood and I, I injected it into the pies. And then, what? <laughs> okay, okay, kid. <laughs> and of course, the the guy that plays um you know the Charles Manson figure Horace. Oh, Bones. Horace Bones! What a brilliant name, Busker, Horace Busker Bones. Um, yes. But yeah, we should sort of, I guess for anyone who hasn't seen it, of course, um, he plays like the leader of a, a hippie satanic cult in the middle of the, the countryside and their, their van breaks down. So they, they sort of invade this small town that's being cleared out because they're building a, a dam and going to flood it. And effectively, they um, abuse one of the, the teenage girls there and, and to get revenge, um, uh, the bratty little kid goes and shoots a dog that's wandering the neighbourhood with rabies and gets a vial of the rabies and puts it in the meat pies that he's um, helping out at. And then the, the hippies, of course, eat these meat pies and go on a, a bit of a killing spree and, and eventually infects, uh, of course, all the workers at the local quarry where they're building the dam. And and some of those quarry workers um, aren't amongst the most convincing thespians either. There's a couple of those uh, funny moments there. <laughs> But it's got some really, like, again, really sickening moments. Like um, we talked earlier about um, the scene of him, like, slurping the meat pies, which is, like, really effectively, like, revolting. But also when the, the doctor character is uh, explaining about the effects of rabies and how it makes people terrified of water and then they intercut scenes of uh, one of the hippie girls that's got rabies and she's just been, like, um, I guess gang assaulted by the quarry workers and they sort of throw her into the shower and said, let her cool off. And it was like a really, you know, coming uh, just, you know, that whole sort of sickening feeling of what it must be like to be infected with rabies and have to be subjected to something like that. I think that's another way the film really sort of got to me. Well, it was a kind you know, because I remember, you know, being a kid in the 70s and not only were TV shows out to get me, <laughs> you know, kids telly in, in UK at that time was not safe for kids. It was brilliant. I'm glad yeah. it exists. But, you know, if you're watching something like the Owl Service or Children of the Stones or Sky, you were going to fucking be slightly demented by the end of that. They weren't. Yeah. All, so if they weren't trying to get you, then you'd have these terrifying public information films, you know, so you, you were either going to be, you know, run over by a fucking bus or you're going to be hit in the face with a firework or electrocuted by a pylon or, or you were going to drown in some uh, wasteland bit of stretch of water or lake or whatever and be haunted by the ghost of Donald Pleasance. You know, all this kind of stuff was terrifying you. But also, you know, you got the, the Cold War growing in the background as well. So, you know, there was also mm -hmm. nuclear holocaust to contend with. But also the other thing that really sticks in my mind in the 70s was going on holiday, you know, where, wherever you went to, you know, seaside towns like Skegness or whatever. But I remember seeing like, you know, rabies posters everywhere. And that was the other thing. It was like it, it was seen as being a real, you know, and I, it, to the point where I remember the first time as a kid, we went to France, you know, went on this one of these cheap, 
you know, holidays to France and I've never seen a dog in France and just being convinced that every dog in France had got rabies. <laughs> I was like, well, I looked I not, not wanted to go anywhere. You're right, there was animals. real scare about it back then. Um, yeah, it was a real panic, you know, and, and to a kid as well, I guess, you know, the thought of it was always terrifying. And, and for me as well, uh, there was always like, um, whether they were urban myths, you know, that if you got rabies, you know, they'd have to give you like six huge, like, you know, um, two foot needles in the stomach to, to, to sort of inoculate you and but yeah like I remember in the 70s just we were absolutely terrified um, at the rabies awareness that seemed to be around and I just uh, made it put to good use by uh, David Cronenberg of course I remember an episode of a uh different strokes you know different strokes weren't afraid to tackle the issues of the day <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> i remember well these one of these books um lee gammon's books is very special episodes about um you know tv shows that went serious yeah and the the, the famous bicycle man episode oh, of different God, strokes Jesus, that's, that's yeah. grim that is that's fucking grim yeah but I, I remember the the rabies episode where Arnold, I, I can't remember where it's a dog, maybe. They think he might have rabies. And there's a scene, you know, and it's uh, Willis being serious, Willis, and he's kind of saying, you know, oh, well, he's got to have uh, 20 shots and like, um, uh, and then he's saying, well, he, you know, he's, his butt's going to be like a pincushion. You know, he's like, no, he's not in his butt, in his stomach, you know, cut to break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that must have been what I heard as well, because that was ter the thought of that was just terrifying. And yeah. I imagine was that the point in the episode where um, where uh, Arnold said, "What are you talking about, Willis?" <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the per perfect moment for him to slip that in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yes, um, uh, yeah. I mean, the other thing I think uh, with this film is that it is. You know, contextually, it kind of does fit into those. Um, there were a lot of films from around that era, sort of slightly later on or slightly earlier, where you know the 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 films are basically made by middle-aged men having no understanding of teenage culture or anything about yeah. that, which is kind of looking back is very endearing, and I love those films. But you know, it's it spawned a lot of those films, like you know. Um, Psychomania, which I love, you know, uh, oh, yeah. but they are the most polite, the most polite middle class version yeah. of a biker gang <laughs> ever, you know, uh, you know, their 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 idea of a rampage is to knock a few cereal boxes over in the local supermarket. Yeah. That's a, you know, <laughs> it's a great uh, film, though. I love it. It's brilliant. It's oh, the, the the just the soundtrack alone you know, is is incredible. Oh, I was going to say, and that's another thing I love about I oh. Drink Your Blood, the weird soundtrack by. Clay Pitts, who for years I was thinking, is that a band or a person? But, uh, apparently, not a person that was also like a band leader or orchestra um, leader. But yeah, it's got that great sort of you know early seventies fuzz guitar that um, you know wow 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 and the do 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 do. But yeah, the music definitely uh, is one of the standouts as well. Of I drink your blood for myself. Yeah, it is. It's it's an incredible. You know, I love all that kind of stuff. You know, psychomania, that sort of sound. Just that. You know, like you say, it's kind of those wah wah guitars or like those those kind of single chord sort of de de delayed or reverb. But it's it's all that kind of stuff. It's incredible. Um, you know, uh, just just amazing. And and the way it kind of builds is kind of it's it's 
partly gothic and archaic but also partly modern and psychedelic it's just all these kind of influences yeah. going in there it's great but yeah there, there, there were a lot of those films you know dracula ad is a particular favorite of mine you know this is someone who doesn't understand you know a you usually get <laughs> teenagers are probably you know knocking on 30 in these films as well yeah um but also in, in, in i drink your blood as well the gang the hippie gang is it's a fucking weird gang. I, I don't... It's, it, it's, yeah, it's kind a, of like... an odd mod, isn't it? There's like the Asian lady who's, um, you know, I guess seems middle-aged almost. Um, there's also like the uh, the guy who just seems to be along for the ride but doesn't really like uh, believe in their, you know, their teachings. Uh, and that's the guy that uh, gets sacrificed. And then there's the blonde guy that's uh, just hanging around for kicks and... And he ends up like still hanging around with them even after they like abuse and um, beat up his, you know, his girl. And you know, I think what does Horace say? How many times have I told you no local girls on the scene? You know, <laughs> local girl, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's it, they are kind of like it, you know, it it's like you know when you used to get like uh, you know the classic um, episodes of particular. Um, science fiction tv shows or whatever where you normally have the episode where they find an alternative universe and you know and south park yeah. took took the piss out of it where you know an alternative universe means everybody has just got like a a goatee beard <laughs> that's how you tell the difference <laughs> but it, feel, it feels like this is kind of i mean they've not got a dog well there is a dog but he gets a uh, done away with fairly quickly um but it, it does yeah. feel like the the inverse scooby-doo this gang they pull up in this this van and, and, and yeah. you know, whereas scooby-doo and the gang will kind of the mystery machine turns up and they try and solve the mystery they just they just turn up take some acid and 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 eat rabies pies <laughs> Together we'll all freak out, he says in the beginning yeah. <laughs> let it be known that satan was an acid head um, but also, I, I, you, you sort of think, well, what's their game? I mean, there's one part in the film where uh, one of the, the the guys asks Horace, you know, what are we going to do here? You know, there's nothing here. And he sort of says, yes, exactly. And there's no cops poking their nose into what we're doing as well. And I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, other than being just <laughs> bastard. You know, it's not like you, you don't have a drug ring or anything like that that um, we're aware of. You know, why are you feeling the need to hide out there? No, I, I was going to say also... Um with the possible exception of Mildred, who, I mean, the actor kind of reminds me of a, she's, she's, she's like a bargain basement version of Mary Tyler Moore. You know, she's even got the, the double barreled uh, name as well. Um, but she's got, she's got a real sort of Mary Tyler Moore, young Mary Tyler Moore look about her. Um, but she's possibly, you know, the only character that has got any kind of, credibility or you know she she's the only one that you you kind of empathize or sympathize with and she's not a great actress yeah. but but the whole town they're all just cunts i'll quite happy lay waste yeah. to the whole town you know all the workmen even before <laughs> they've been infected by rabies they're all the uh, they're, yeah they're already assholes. and yeah. um mildred's uh boyfriend um he's like the i think he's like the foreman there and he's hardly like you know, um, someone you'd write home to mum about. <laughs> yeah, it's just... But, yeah, yeah they're what? all pretty much awful. Uh, Wipe them out. Personality. Wipe Like, I guess, um, we've got Lynn Lowry, of course, who is a yeah. bit of a cult actress, uh, thanks to her role in uh, some Romero and Cronenberg um, films. And I think her character works because she doesn't speak, you know, and it gives her a sort of like a, a strange sort of... Um, 
almost like a childlike sort of innocence about her and curiosity about her. And she's got like a really nice uh, ethereal sort of quality yeah. to her face. And and she just looks like a typical, like I could picture as like, you know, we're talking before about some of the others, you wouldn't necessarily uh, picture as your typical hippie gang. Whereas I think Lynn Lowry, you could see her as a, a member of the Manson gang or a member of a, you know, a hippie gang. She definitely had that sort of vibe about her. I mean, I, I guess with this film, again, it sort of predates it, but this film, and we've talked about sort of psychomania and things like that, but I think that even though it, it, it's obviously seen as a folk horror film and it has, it's, it's a period drama, so and it kind of disguises that, but something like Blood on Satan's Claw is exactly dealing with these issues you know they are manson kids really you know this is this is the thing it's the you know very much uh, you know blood on satan's claw is a far superior film however you know the plots and the what, what happens is is very sort of you know they they mirror each other very much so they're tapping into a similar zeitgeist so i think you know and i think even um what you're saying before about dracula ad 72 also tapped into that sort of post um Manson zeitgeist, you know, when they're talking about um, Satanism in the little coffee club and, you know, one of them says, well, that's Sunday supplement stuff, you know. <laughs> it was just there was that whole sort of pulp um, element to things, I think. And, again, I think Sunday supplement was the perfect uh, summation because that's usually where I'd read about, you know, things like, you know, satanic cults and Manson, you know, growing up. I mean, I, I'm too young to remember Manson when it happened, but I remember um the Helter Skelter movie in the the mid seventies, you know, coming on and and that was like really terrifying and just reading about it, you know, and there was still at that point there was still like a few you know um, lingering hippies around my area here in St Kilda, so you know, they always sort of upset me, and I was always convinced, you know, basically every hippie I came across was you know a member of some satanic cult and. You know, they'll probably just like stoned and grooving to Black Sabbath. You know? <laughs> but I would always be terrified of them. <laughs> and uh, but there was also some other American movies like Death Master with Robert Quarry, which uh, has a very Manson-esque um, appeal to it as well. And it's also very similar to like I Drink Your Blood in that it's you know very much a you know a glossy sort of you know pure exploitation film, unlike you know Blood on Satan Claws, which actually has some, you know genuine sort of uh, depth and you know, um, meaning to it. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I think, I mean, the thing that goes in it, it it's either going to, you know, um, the thing that that make it terrible are kind of everything we've talked about. The things that make it brilliant are everything we've talked about. You know? <laughs> it's kind of one of yeah. those films. <laughs> you, you've got to go with it. You know, all its faults are its kind of strengths as well. It's, that's the point, you know, and I think it is, but I, I'm not... I, I get when people have a very restricted view of films and cinema because not everybody's into it as, as much as we are and, and certainly not everybody's into the kind of cult, the cult end and the sort of that, that, that you know, because you know, I'm a film nerd and I'll talk about this stuff and I'll, I'll always try and see the positives in stuff because I, I want to love everything about this. You know, I'll always try and find something, you know, positive to say about any movie I watch, you know, just to just so I can tell myself that I didn't waste my time. You know? But I know, I realise there's lots of people that would watch five seconds of I Drink Your Blood and just turn it off and say, this is just trash, this is crap, you know. And I get that, you know, I'm just glad that I'm not that sort of person that, you know, to me it, it gets it as both, you know, um, it's a fun party movie for me, you know, the sort of film to have with a few, sort of film to watch, you know, with a few like-minded friends after a couple of beers and a pizza and whatever, and, you know, it's perfect. 
yeah you, you this is absolutely one of those films you have to take all of it or nothing uh, you, 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 there's no point in dibbing in and out and trying. You, you, you can't nip, You can't sort of cherry pick. It's this is what it is. Uh, it's cheap. It's nasty. It's not particularly well acted, and yet there is something. It creates a vibe, and that is something you can't replicate. You know, which is not to say there aren't some incredibly brilliant 21st century horror films. Of course they are. I love a lot of those. But there is something that very few people, if anybody, can kind of replicate because it is about the film stock. It is about the age. It is about the grubbiness, you know. Um, there are a few people that kind of, um, you know, Mark Jenkins is, is, is really unusual. He did a film called Bait and then he did en Ennis Main, which is, you know, he films them on 16 mil and it's, it's, yeah, and he does all the, the audio afterwards. And it's, it's got this really charming, eerie, weird quality to them. So there are some people that can do it, but you know, um, this, like a lot of those late sixties, early seventies films, it just oozes grubbiness. You can, you can you can smell the sweat you can smell the bo you yeah. can smell the fags you can smell the... that they're running around you can sort of you know you can almost like you can almost like sense the rabies you know it's just that scene where they're like hunting the rats and then shishka bobbing them over the open flame it's just really unpleasant film, you know, yeah. in so many ways so many of the visuals are just so unpleasant and repellent yet again it's just like fascinating it's kind of like that car accident um you know, a scenario where it's ugly, but you you can't look away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, yeah. You know, I I'm paraphrasing now. But, you know, Todd Browning, who we discussed in the last episode. He, you know, he famously well, he said one of his quotes was, again, you know, I'm para uh, paraphrasing, but he, you know, he said something that you know people would, you know, you might have a, a circus on one side of the street and then a dead horse on the other, and more people will go and look at the dead horse, you know, before they go and see this, or something like that, you know. Um, and that still holds true. Otherwise, we wouldn't, our screens wouldn't be full of, you know, salacious uh, tabloid, tabloid kind of TV, and we wouldn't have kind of reality yeah. TV shows because that's who we are, you know. Again, I'm not the first one to say this, but, you know, if you look at something like, the got talent wherever they are britain or uk or whatever those shows are you know the early stages of those it, it may as well be a freak show you know they the mm -hmm. the people on there aren't there you know you might have a few in quotes talented people but you you have you know basically i would argue some of the people on there have got mental health issues and and you know they're they're shuffled yeah. on in front of a yeah obeying yeah. nation to to laugh at and it, you, we've not really moved away from the victorian freak shows to be honest in a lot of ways yeah, yeah. not the sort of thing i watch but you know again uh, it's also the same thing that whenever there's like a you know a natural disaster or a terrorist attack i mean why do the ratings go up because people get glued to the media and also you know um, you know tying into this and sort of manson and things like that the idea you know, if you talk to psychologists and you talk to people that deal with the aftermath of kind of serial killers and, and murderers, the one thing they'll say over and over again, don't give credence to this. Don't publicize them. Don't make it about them. And what do we get every single time it becomes about them? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 we, we just don't seem to learn from that. Um, 
So yeah, there's a lesson to be learned. Don't inject your pies with the rabid blood of dogs. It doesn't end well. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the scene too where the little kid um, fights off uh, Horace with like a pathetic little um, punch to the groin and Horace bends over like he's just been kicked by a, a football linebacker or something. You know? <laughs> and this little kid goes running off into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Horace, Horace Bones, what a fucking great name! I, I this time of year, November, December, tend to dig out. Um, I read a lot of Dickens ghost stories, but I also tend to watch a lot of the BBC Dickens adaptations. And, and me and my wife love them, and we just watch them back to back and all go through all the box sets. And the the best thing about Dickens is, I mean, obviously the stories are great, but it is the names, you know. And Horace Bones yeah. could easily have been a Dickens character. <laughs> it's a good name. It's right Horace up there, isn't Bones. it? It's probably one of the best things about yeah. the movie. And a charismatic was... guy. I mean, um, not, not a good actor, but, you know, we were certainly uh, very, like, uh, chiseled oh, yeah, and well-toned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I believe he was, like, already in his 40s when he made that movie, so he was in pretty good shape. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. One of the first things we see is he's kind of a um, he's six-pack or whatever. He's, he's a toned, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, you know, um, yeah. Um, so, John, um, have you you got a quick plug for us? So, when's when's the book coming out, or do you uh, know? Or uh, so, the creatures of the screen. Yeah, hopefully, um, again, uh, if anyone wants to look me up on Facebook, um, but I'm hoping, yeah, like April, May next year. Uh, so by mid next year, which isn't too far off. We're getting to December now, and um, what else? You know, anyone who's in Melbourne, I also. Uh, turn up at some of the Cinemaniac screenings and do some introductions there at Acme. I've got one coming up on the 16th of December, introducing Batman Returns on 35mm film, which I'm pretty excited about, my favourite Batman movie. Yep. Um, and also, I guess for anyone out there who wants to, you know, um, check out I Drink Your Blood, we mentioned before um, in the UK, 88 films, and I think in the US there's Grindhouse releasing, and in Australia there's a good um, Blu-ray put out by a company called X-Film, E-X-Film, so check them out. They've got a Blu-ray that's also got um, the, the co-feature I Eat Your Skin, which um, a bit of an um, unrelated film, really. It was just like an old 1960s, um, early 60s sort of black and white film called Zombie Voodoo Bloodbath initially, I think, and they just basically retitled it to go out with I Drink Your Blood. But it is a great double bill, I Drink Your Blood and I Eat Your Skin. I mean, what Grindhouse <laughs> horror fan would be flocking for that, you know, when they see the poster? <laughs> but, yeah, just uh, doing all um, work. You know, for for some of the mags that you do and some of the labels as well, you know, got some stuff coming up with Arrow and, um, you know, Umbrella Entertainment over here. So, yeah, always keep busy. Excellent. Okay. It just remains for me to say thank you to John Harrison for coming on. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.